If you listen to A, you know that B is an afterthought because I didn't think my podcast was that long. I guess I just didn't pay attention because I was putting a podcast together. So this is the second part. You won't hear an intro or anything because I'm going to just do it like it's one podcast. It's kind of silly to make them separate as in two different starts and yada, yada, yada. So we are just going straight into B. You should have heard a soundbite of music. And that is a crazy-ass professor dancing. And action! Well, I'm glad this isn't a live show, because I just had a power outage and <laughs> to reconstruct all sorts of stuff, which took one hour. And now, I'm back to recording. So, the last thing you heard was an NYU professor dancing. And by now, maybe you've already seen it. I wanted to play it, but there's not a lot of college crazy. And Jarek Brule brings it to us. Tish Dean sent out an email updating regarding the student body's demand for refunds and transparency regarding NYU's handling of COVID-19 at the end of its attached video of her dancing to REM's Losing My Religion. This was not an accident. This was sort of way of trying to reach out to the students. I am personally upset that we're being denied access to this equipment and facilities and still being charged the same amount for what is admittedly by the university a lower quality education and of course you know when you train all these kids to be socialist and college should be free and then you're still charging them for courses that you're taking online now yeah the blowbacks on you dude you're the ones that wanted it okay uh other one that we found was texas professor might reconsider being atheist if trump would die from coronavirus yeah Richard Wigman's J.F. Busey Chair Professor at Texas Tech University. I'm sorry, the name is J.F. Busey. Not Richard Wigman's is the author, but I edited this wrong. Uh, Texas Tech University emailed his physics department colleagues outlining his prediction of the effect of COVID as well as interpretation of Donald Trump's handling of the global pandemic. Wigman's began his email as a copy of campus reform obtained by questioning why the media do not present the data in logarithmic form because that is how pandemics develop. He points out that South Korea fixed percentual increase in 5% per day and Italy is a 10 to 15% per day increase. He contrasts those numbers with America's, which he says is unable at a rate of a 25 to 30% per day. And that way we will cross the 10,000 death line by next week, Wigman wrote. He suggests that Trump is downplaying the situation by explaining that this pandemic equals the sum of casualties from 9-11, the Iraq wars, and Afghanistan war combined. The interesting thing is a lot of people are doing that. You only cared about those deaths when Bush was president. You've never reported them since, by the way. He says Trump is brushing off Brushing it off when the president says that one week later, well, the whole thing will be over, blah, 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 blah. The White House coronavirus test briefing, blah, blah, blah. Easter remarks was only an aspiration, but this guy's a douche nozzle. Throughout the email, Wigman does not call the president by name. He calls him 45. He continued by pointing out that several weeks ago, the president said everything was under tremendous control. And I give myself a grade of 10 of 10. Wigman says the president's not stupid and gives his interpretation of president's 45 words with three bullet points. One, 75% of the deaths are from states that did not vote for me. Why would I do anything for these SOBs? 80% of the deaths are 65 or older. Good riddance of these moochers. And a scared Congress will provide multi-trillion dollar bailout package that will generally take care of my beloved stock market. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's what it is. But I got some collagen. Here's the gay shit and Ryan Murphy is on the case of every gay show you have on your TV that 
There's two dudes humping in a goddamn fucking ambulance. Well, that's Ryan Murphy. With this creator behind it, we know this show is going to be good. Welcome to Ms. Mojo, and today we'll be looking at everything we know about Ryan Murphy's Netflix series Hollywood so far. For this video, we'll be looking at all the information we currently have about this upcoming project. In case you're not familiar with him, Ryan Murphy is a multi-talented writer, producer, and director who's best known for his hugely successful show Glee. Break a leg. I love you. He was also behind other hit programs like American Horror Story, Scream Queens, and Nip Tuck, and directed Eat, Pray, Love starring Julia Roberts. All right, let me teach you a word. Therapist. He's tackled multiple genres, including high school comedies, horror, and workplace dramas. And with his show Hollywood, he's going somewhere both new and familiar. Slated as a limited series, Hollywood takes us back in time to L.A. in the post-World War II era. It follows several different characters trying to make it in the film industry. I am big. It's the picture that got small. Murphy describes the show as, quote, a love letter to the golden age of Tinseltown. However, it's not going to be all glitz and glamour. The show employs a modern perspective, looking at how marginalized people were treated in Hollywood. This includes tackling the treatment of women in the entertainment industry, as well as the sex industry during the period in question. Murphy said the intention is to show, quote, how absolutely everything has changed and nothing has changed. No, I don't go to the movies much. If you've seen one, you've seen them all. As far as the cast goes, there are a lot of familiar faces for fans of Murphy's other work. Notably, David Cornsweet is starring in the role of Jack. And it's about Hollywood in the 1940s and young, optimistic people who are out to seek their fortune. He also has a major role in The Politician, another of Murphy's shows on Netflix, playing River Barkley, the ex and rival of the main character Peyton. You're blowing this thing way out of proportion. You know the moments you win, I'm going to tell everyone that we had sex and that you're living a lot. Corn Sweat described this new project by saying, quote, There's going to be great clothes and great accents. It's going to be sexy and optimistic. It's really about young people and the excitement of young people seeking opportunity. Darren Chris, who's a frequent collaborator with Murphy, will be playing the role of Raymond. Glee fans will undoubtedly recognize Chris as Blaine Anderson of the Dalton Academy Warblers, whose relationship with Kurt made him a fan favorite character. Let you put your hands on me in my skin tight jeans, be your teenage dream tonight. He also played a major figure in another of Murphy's projects, the assassination of Gianni Versace, American Crime Story. That had a much darker edge than his turn on Glee. I tell people what they need to hear. For that role, he took home an Emmy, a Golden Globe, and a SAG Award. Broadway performer Jeremy Pope will play a character named Archie Coleman. There are some other major names attached to the project as well, including Dylan McDermott, Patti LuPone, and Jim Parsons. We also know that Mira Sorvino and Rob Reiner will be making appearances. Murphy has a habit of working with the same people on multiple projects, and Hollywood is no exception. He co-created this series with Ian Brennan, who he also collaborated with on Glee, Scream Queens, and The Politician. So, if you've enjoyed those shows, you can expect more of the quick wit and sardonic humor that they're known for. 
Murphy and Brennan are both producing, alongside Alexis Martin-Woodall and Janet Mock. Mock also helped in penning the screenplay. Three of the cast members, Darren Criss, David Cornsweet, and Jeremy Pope will also be acting as producers. Hollywood will be hitting Netflix on May 1st, 2020, and will be the first product of the massive deal that Ryan Murphy signed with the streaming giant in 2018. While Murphy had been known for working with Fox, when his contract expired, he was wooed by Netflix, who offered him a payout of something in the ballpark of $300 million for a five-year deal. This news rocked the entertainment industry because of the staggeringly high numbers involved, the likes of which hadn't been seen before. While Murphy did already create *The Politician*, which aired on Netflix, that show was produced by 20th Century Fox TV. Okay, what's my next move? Hollywood is part of a large slate of projects on the horizon that are being produced as the result of Murphy's Netflix deal. Other projects include a miniseries adaptation of *A Chorus Line*, as well as iterations of *The Boys in the Band* and *The Prom*, both Broadway shows. Before we continue, be sure to subscribe to our channel and ring the bell to get notified about our latest videos. You have the option to be notified for occasional videos or all of them. If you're on your phone, make sure you go into your settings and switch on notifications. The boys in the band will feature the show's original cast in a film version of the story. We're gonna pound the door in a little bit and show you how we really are, and not be afraid of being gay and not trying to hide it or to disguise it. And that, to me, is the legacy of the play. The prom will star Meryl Streep and Nicole Kidman, as well as Andrew Rannells, James Corden, and Ariana DeBose. He's also working on a prequel to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest called Ratchet, starring Sarah Paulson. And as soon as we do, I want to bring you on as my guest. There are a lot of reasons to be excited about Hollywood, as well as this ongoing partnership, and we can't wait to see what they come up with next. Check out this other recent clip from Ms. Mojo, and be sure to subscribe and ring the bell to be notified about our latest videos. He's doing a Hollywood show. It's glitz, glam, and gay. Ryan Murphy and Netflix Hollywood tidy whities rock Hudson and revisionist history of showbiz where everybody's gay in it. Yeah. The gay websites, The Advocate, Pink News, they're high on this. I'm not going to read it, but this will be the next push. Why LGBTQ journalists are more important than ever now. In these dreary times, we need queer writers, reporters, and photographers to be leading storytelling. So can guarantee glad because they're getting what they want, and they've had such an influx of gay characters everywhere. Their next push is going to be: we need gay photographers and、um, anchors, which you have a preponderance on CNN, and they'll start counting that, and that'll be something that the media in Hollywood will start buckling to. That well, we can't hire you because you don't suck dick. So if you suck dick, we can hire you. Are you by? It won't matter how good they are. Liberal Union launches smear campaign against openly gay Trump appointee.、Uh, his mere existence undercuts their narrative from the vicious targeting harassment. This is Richard Grenell, so they're attacking him. Don't be shocked if Trump tries to delay the election. This came from the Advocate, based on no truth. They're just saying it. It's actually the left. That's trying to delay the actual thing, but you know, truth doesn't matter. Texas online film fests offer must-see content for LGBTQ viewers, and then they go through this article and try to, con- try to conflate 
somebody's actions that they're gay, which made no sense. First New York City nurse reported to die in COVID-19 as a gay man. There's no verification. They went off a social media post where he supported gayness. Yeah. COVID-19 severely tests LGBTQ organizations, but work continues. HRC's Alfonso David, TL Def's Andy Mara, and Glad Sarah Katie. The many nonprofit organizations that serve the gay community, include the most marginalized members, are feeling the domino effect of the outbreak. First caution against large gatherings meant the cancellation of major fundraising. Blah, 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 blah. Case of point is New York City's Alley Forney Center, one of the few organizations in the nation with an exclusive mission to serve only homeless gay people. Yeah. They're remaining open. Uh, the center operates 18 sites around the city in Manhattan, Queens, and Brooklyn. It has a drop-off center which provides meals, medical and health services, legal assistance, and more. It offers emergency shelters. It has 1,400 clients. And, of course, they didn't do any journalism and find out how many of them got fires, but there probably is. They bitch about GLAD, and they're going to reschedule to get their money. And this article basically just says they're still pushing the issue, um, and people are still donating, even though they have to see each other face-to-face. Trans groups push for urgent government funding to support their communities through the pandemic. Multiple transgender organizations have joined call for the U.S. government to provide urgent funding to support trans people through the coronavirus pandemic. And in here, there's actually a reference that they need money so people can continue to get their um, sex reassignments because if they don't, they'll commit suicide. So risk pandemic death. Because of supposed suicide. Makes sense. 20 LGBTQ Ugandans arrested for allegedly flouting social distancing. That was a big article. Amid a global crisis, legislator prioritized targeting trans youth. No magic pillow will fix the sleepless night Trump's created. This is just a hateful event. And it's so late to the party. They wrote this way after, but they just trashed the shit out of him. Not because he donated to Trump. Yeah, you guessed it out there in Oregon, Matt. It's because he's a Christian. Yeah. Trump admin opposes transgender girls participating in girls' sports. And Anthony Barr weighed in and said, no, biological boys shouldn't. And there's still articles. They signed the laws. And they're not anti-trans. They're pro-women. But they are all over these websites. They just are so butthurt that Idaho protected women. By the way, polls show Idahoans are fully for it. I bet if you did a survey, you'd find most of Americans are for it. It's not fair for a boy to compete against a girl. Do you want that shit? Olympics? Fine. Where we can actually check the blood, see if they're taking opposite hormones, yada, yada, yada. Then it's fair. But we don't do that in school. GLAD celebrates trans love stories for trans days of visibility. And this was a, it's dated, it was a while ago. I had pulled up some of the posts, but I've removed them now because it's dated. But here's an article that showed up on The Advocate. Today, for Transgender Day of Visibility, GLAD has launched a partnership with Instagram, Trans Love Stories. Very confusing. You don't know which one's the male. Really, they're just gay, but they're dressed like women, so they call themselves lesbians. It's so confusing. Most of this just, I'm like, dude, you just derailed. Um, 
roll out portraits, IGTV videos of various pairs of trans people to showcase the diversity of trans love. It is very diverse. Very. Merzola Lena, co-author of the new book, My Sister, How One Sibling's Transition Changed Us, model Shala Tyson Tashudu and their partner, Noah, which is confusing. That's that pronoun shit. Why can't you just say her? It's a her. Why is it there? Business owner, Marla Washington, content creator, AJ Clemens, and her boyfriend, Especially during this unprecedented time, you know that it's critical for people to find support and connection through online communication and digital storytelling. I, this is the 10th annual of this that I've never fucking heard of, but let's just break it down. When is Twitter not supporting trans and gay community? That's all they support. There's never Christian Day. There's not uh, cis-normative woman day. There's no Twitter trends of normal people. Which is majority, it's always trans. Just a really, really long list of cisgender people who've come out loudly and proudly for Trans Equality Day. And this is a litany of liberals. AOC, uh, Don Cheadle, H. Bomber Guy, Harry Styles, Hosier, uh, Iceland. It's an Icelandic politician's United States to pass a major new gender law. Okay. Lorraine Kelly, Rick Riordan, Ruth Hunt, Charlize Theron. That's how she went off my hottie list. Chris Jericho, an ex-WWE guy. Damon Helen Miranda, David Paisley, the gay actor. Elizabeth Warren, Flora. I don't know who that is. Frankie Boyle. And then they featured Jimmy Dwarve Hobble Page. Challenge for you, Frankie, and those reading this. Name all 72 genders. People want recognized. Frank Boyle. For the avoidance of doubt, I have zero interest in whatever transphobic neurosis you fill your days with. I have no time for anyone denying anyone else their freedom to live the life they need to live. Because... This person, name them. What are the 72 genders? Well, let's, I'm going to Google them. 72 genders defined. Let's see. What are the 72 genders? Sweet God Almighty. There's a list. There's Slate. Agender, androgen, androgynous, bigender, cis, cisgender, cis female, male, man, woman, female, cisgender, it's the same, it's cis, but then it's cisgender, male, female, man, woman, male, FTM, gender fluid, non-conforming. I got a bookmark. That'll be in our next gay shit. There it is. I'm not going to cover it now because I got enough shit, but we'll, we'll go over all of these. And to be quite honest, it's just repetitive fucking nonsense. Uh, Jamela Hill. Yeah. J- Jamela Jamil. We know about her. Little Mix. Literally hundreds of feminists, but not the ones that are major feminists because you excluded them. Hundreds of guardian staff. And then there were thousands of trans allies. 2,236 to be precise who wrote the Guardian protesting the pattern of abusive articles about trans people Mara Wilson this was um, her this is her handle Mara get rid of Nazis Wilson 
Oh, God, you're just intersectionality in a fucking package. I've never gotten more hate on here than when I express support for trans people, but I see no reason to exclude or be hateful to for one of the most vulnerable populations. Trans women and women or are women. Trans men are men. It does not take away from my rights and being who I am. I will probably be muting this. Really don't get how trans people being who they are and who they want to be take away from feminism and threaten the world. Well, they're taking all their awards and positions, so yeah, it does kind of threaten women. Trans rights spites. Mel C. Mahari Black. Nicola Coughlin. Nigella Lawson. New York Times books. The singular they is older than the singular you, only in the 16... Oh, shut the fuck up. I, it's always worse when they start wordsmithing. Owen Jones, senior politicians of the Labor Party. Renee Edo Lodge, leave trans people alone, because Roxanne Gay, the U.S. writer and commentator, has one thing to say about anti-trans feminists. You should know better, having been marginalized as women throughout history. Amen. Blah. Sadiq Khan, the mayor of uh, London. Tarina Burke, the Me Too founder. The second show, oh, she also is ignoring Biden, so she's not really into me too and young blood a rock singer that nobody's ever heard of buried on pink news ignored by our media iraqi cleric blames same-sex marriage for global coronavirus but you heard every christian nutcase that said it and i call him a nutcase because that's pretty fucking stupid to say that it's anything that gave us our pandemic uh it just happens but we did not hear about the global uh, call to crush the Iraqi cleric because we don't touch Islam. Um, homosexual is not illegal in Iraq, but discrimination widespread and LGBTQ people are frequently, uh, according to Al-Arabia, Iraqi Shia political leader Mutada al-Sadr. Yeah. The Sadr dude. Hmm. You guys are fucking hypocrites. <clears throat> uh... The only not awful person in Tiger King is a trans man who was misgendered throughout the series. They're saying that the girl in there is actually a man. She didn't talk about it. Why do you care? Little Nas S says he planned to die with the secret of his sexuality. Then Old Road came out. Catholics for Trump coalition loaded with anti-LGBTQ extremists, they say. Leader of a new group are all out of step with most U.S. Catholics saying the human rights campaign. Anti-LGBTQ activists are well represented in the Catholics for Trump, a coalition supported by Donald Trump's re-election as president that launched Thursday night with an online event. Co-chairs of the coalition advisory board included former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, long noted for hostility for gay rights. Members of the board include another former congressman, Tim Hulskamp, who has called marriage equality a legal fiction. Morgie Dansfeller has worked with Mike Pence on religious freedom policies along allowing discrimination in health care. Mm, discrimination, okay. Sean Filer has called same-sex relationships unstable and said that being transgender can never be normalized. The live stream online event was in Milwaukee. They watched it and they lost their shit and wrote a very long article that basically... Well, I don't... Fuck, I think Jim Acosta's on this. Is it... Uh, let's see. Washington Examiner that one of the coalition strategies would be to paint likely Democratic nominee Joe Biden a pro-choice Catholic as an extremist on abortion. At the end of the day, President Trump is the most pro-life president we've seen in our country. She added, there's such a long list of things President Trump has done to support the pro-life community and to support religious liberty, which is increasingly important to those of us who are Catholic. During the live stream, her husband said President Obama had waged a war 
on religious institution and that Trump had stopped it. Trump and the Catholic activists backing him are actually out of step with American Catholics as a whole. That's not true. Human rights campaign is saying it, not Catholics. U.S. Catholics are more likely to support LGBTQ rights than the average American, largely due to Catholic values of inclusion and justice, Lucas Acosta wrote. Okay, I thought it was Jim Acosta. Yeah. All right, let's go to racist shit, and everything is racist. We're going to start with the coronavirus is racist, because it's killing people, and as I said in the last podcast, that's a big push now. It's black people that are dying of corona, because whitey's giving it to them. One local health commissioner who calls racism a public health issue says she's taking the lead by collecting important information that she says could help save lives. CBS News contributor Ibram X. Kendi is also director of the Anti-Racist Policy Center at American University. If we don't have an awareness right now of racial disparities, we can't right now figure out what's causing those racial disparities what policies or even lack thereof and we can't change it right now in the moment when people are dying and and being in and we know that african americans are actually um contracting and dying um, of covid 19 at higher rates first regard to the um troubling uh data that you've just talked about about how a lot of the deaths are disproportionately harming uh communities of color i think that probably has to do with uh, institutional racism that can be found in our healthcare system, but also in the nature of the work that often communities of color have. Those tens of those types of jobs tend to be held by communities of color because they're lower wages because of institutional racism within our economy. Yeah, that that uh, yeah no, there is actually no fucking proof of that. There's none. All right, there's just. None of it is actually proven. But they just keep rolling this out because they can get away with it. I mean, it's, it's fucking ungoddamn believable the things that these gay and race baiting organizations can do this. When I went to Darut, the coronavirus killed my friend. His blood is on Donald Trump's hand. On Sunday, 29th, New York Times published Nothing Matters Anymore, my essay about some of the existential crises the coronavirus has thrust on us, the violence of the whiplash of the past month and electric slide. I first sent Jeff Parker, staff editor at the Times, a draft on Friday, the 20th, include the following line. I do know that it's likely that some people I know will get sick from this, me included. Saturday, the 21st, however, the day after I first submitted the draft, my dad texted me that he had just heard that a person we both knew had died or fallen ill. So when I received the draft back from Jen, I made the appropriate edit. Several days ago, I could say that no one I knew had fallen seriously ill. I can no longer say this. This person's name was Stephen Catman. He died Monday morning. He, we first met in basketball, blah, blah, blah. But I grew fond of him. Is this, blah, blah, blah. Well, let's get to the point. Um, uh, I remember Steve as being boisterous. La, uh, la, 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 la. Uh, nothing was stopping that train, but the matter of scale. What matters are the mouths of lying and misdirecting and gaslighting? All because he knew that a hit the economy would impact his re-election bid. What matters are the hundreds of thousands his vanity will kill. From what we know about the coronavirus, the last moment of his victims are cruel, painful, and terrifying and alone. Your last breaths, if you call them, are gasps. You're also alone because friends and family are prevented from coming near you. When I think about this, I think about Donald Trump and my mind goes places I can't print. 
I don't know what to do with this anger. I can't let it consume me and it won't. Too many people are dependent on me to allow that to happen. I just can't. I need to keep my family safe. I need to keep myself safe. But right now I feel it's fire. And when I see that motherfucker, all I see is Steve's blood. This was Damon Young. The editor-in-chief of VSB, a colonist for GQ, an author of What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker. Here is all his post. Do I really want all Trump supporters to die? Nah, just those fueled by hate. Michelle Obama is the best thing about America. I'm voting for Hillary because I want Trump supporters to lose badly and go and fucking die. This is the article. A week from now, we will hopefully know who the next president of the United States will be. And between now and Tuesday, everyone reading this will be inundated with an avalanche of information. Purpose of either informing your choice others have made or influencing, reinforcing, swaying the decision you haven't made yet. This will mostly not be that. Instead, I will tell you about the choice I made and why I decided to make it Hillary Clinton. But this isn't why I'm voting for her. I'm I'm just skipping down. I'm voting for her because I do not want to live in an America where the type of people who fervently, dogmatically, and unconditionally support Trump, who exist so motivated by a permeated with hate and fear and loathing that they can't stand information being Darth behind Darth Cheeto, have a reason to be optimistic about their beliefs. I do want these people to feel good or inspired. I do not want them to receive some type of collective psychic victory. I do not want them to experience any measure of positive reinforcement, no encouragement, no stir, no rousing, no influx of energy, no invigoration. No revitalization. No nothing beside confusion, shame, and if the confusion and shame isn't enough to convince them to at least consider not hating me and people who look like me and people who don't look like them, death. Yes, you read that correctly. I want these motherfuckers to lose, and if losing what might be the last winnable election for them in a millennia isn't enough for them to move into the 21st century, I wouldn't terribly mind if they withered the fuck away and died. I'll even write them a card, and the card will say, thank you. So that article gets printed, and nobody knows this. It goes to the New York Times. This guy wished death on people for the very reasons he says he hates people. Because he hates whites. And that's journalism. Other articles. How to avoid getting shot and killed by the police if you happen to be black. Don't be black. Don't have black parents. Don't have black significant others. Don't live in a black neighborhood. Try not to live in any major city. Do not attend an HBCU. Do not appear in the movie Clifton Powell happens to be in. Oh, that means. Don't appear in a McDonald's or Chrysler ad. Don't be Rhonda, Shonda Rhimes. If inviting people to cook out the suburb, don't tell people to come at 2 p.m. but not have the meal ready until 5. Another article. America the Beautiful Fucking Joke. Ten things prominent President Obama has not been accused of being yet. A great basketball player, Drake, Amish, Jesus. That's actually a lie. Suffering from Napoleon Complex, a deadbeat dad, a vegan, a big fan of Kanye West, a guy with a dad bod, right-handed. President Obama trolling the fuck out of conservatives and I love it. You have any doubts that President Obama has made trolling the fuck out of conservatives his personal mission? Consider this. In the past two years, legalized gay marriage, legalized marijuana. No, he didn't. 
given legal status to million illegal immigrants and basically just make Cuba the 51st state. None of that black people liked. They only liked it because Obama was black. President Obama speaks on Ferguson and words come out of his mouth. And this is a whole glowing thing of him saying, yeah, everybody's racist. It's the reason why I do this section. This guy's a fucking racist on a level I can't even comprehend. And he has a mouthpiece at root. So I even searched a video about him, and this is Damon Young. Um, this book is for is for niggas, for niggas that read and niggas that enjoy reading books written by other niggas. My name is Damon Young. I'm the author of What Does It Kill You Makes You Blacker. My face is on this book, which is not weird at all. So the original title of the book was actually Nigga Neurosis, and everyone loved it. And then my editor reached out to her people at Barnes Noble and her people at Amazon, who were basically like, you know, we love Damon. We love that title. We, we, we could carry it, but I don't know how, I don't know if we could have banner ads with nigga blasted across them. So maybe, you know, think of a different title. This book is a, just a combination of experiences, of recollections, of anxieties, of angst, and everything that just goes into the existing wild black experience. There's another chapter called Bomb Ass Poetry, which talks about me in college and being so like obsessed with like Love Jones, and not just the movie Love Jones, but just that entire black poetry, spoken word, coffee house era, and the, the measures I took to kind of transform myself into some bomb-ass poetry writing-ass nigga. So I, I tried to beat Darius Love Hall. So the title of this poem is I Got Your Letter. And it's a response to a non-existent black woman's non-existent letter lamenting the lack of eligible black men. So basically it's me saying, hey, you know, you're talking about there's no single men, but I'm here. And that and that's what this poem is about. Also, just I, I wrote this in 1998. Okay, so this uh, allegedly. I hear you, sis. Your kiss? <laughs> Shit. I never dismiss them lips, thick ass, hips, thighs, eyes, voice. God damn, girl. You got me moist. <laughs> Other choices, please. Give her brother some credit. Think Ali McBeal can deal with my long straw mandingo steel? <laughs> you know the book obviously you know has a lot of has a lot of levity and a lot of humor, a lot of satire, but it also gets gets dark, gets very vulnerable. Talks about my mom's death. It talks about the economic anxiety that I that I, that I faced basically throughout my whole life. It talks about um, just these levels of self-doubt and fear and how all of those things kind of impacted the decisions that I made, the relationships I was in. The concluding chapter is titled Zoe, and that's the name of my daughter, and the chapter is about just this fatherhood, and and I feel like it's a combination of, of everything that's happened in the book, culminating these lessons I'm trying to teach my daughter under the context of existing while black in this country, this very white supremacist nation, and 
and so how that's going to impact how I raise her. Black woman, I'm here for you. Please make up your fucking mind. Because I like the bills starting to look a little fun. Yeah. That was so bad. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm down with people being who they are. And once again, I don't do this section because I'm against African Americans. This section is devised to show the racism that's ignored in our media and society and lefties because it's done by people of color. And that guy is like a poster boy. He makes Al Sharpton look less racist. He's just a racist motherfucker. So, then the root was really big on signaling out large populations of black people with governors that are GOP. Alabama, Georgia. This one was a dangerous shit gamble. Alabama gay Governor Kay Ivey refused to order shelter in place, leaving black Americans especially at risk. Just black people. Because they don't care about whitey. So this, this was... NBC's DeRoot breaking away from we want Whitey to die in the South so we can say it's Fox News and Trump's fault, but now we're not. Because all of a sudden we realize there's a lot of African American, there's a lot of gay people down here. They might die too. Their next article is Black Lives Matter leaders see organizing opportunities during COVID-19. Dr. Madilia Abdullah, co-founder of BLM's LA chapter said, Justice crises are used by oppressive regimes to usher in their visions. We can also think about the systemic collapse open up for us. How radical visions can be advanced during these movements. So, just like Democrats, they were pushing it's time to fucking organize and get these motherfuckers. So, by yesterday, DeRoot outright stopped hinting. Black communities are on the front line of COVID pandemic. Here's why. A natural, a natural progression. Redlining was born out of a mo- moment not unlike other countries and current barreling towards. In the 30s, as a prolonged economic crisis spurred the need for the New Deal, federal lawmakers sought to increase rates of homeownership by homeowner loan corporations, save property owners who were defaulting on their mortgage. Security maps were drafted to give a lay of the land. Neighborhoods that were considered safe investments were coated in green. Black areas were red. Sacrifice zones. These factors all contribute to elevating a person's individual vulnerability to get deathly sick from COVID-19. But as the pandemic has made clear, coronavirus is communal, not a personal problem. And the conditions black, native, and Latinx communities live in not only ensures they're more likely to develop severe symptoms from coronavirus, but it'll have a profound effect on their community. So because we have areas like the Ninth Ward where... Spike Lee and company made people believe forever they purposely blew the dam to kill black people. They believe we've designed cities so that just black people get pandemics. Where is Alex Jones of the left? Oh, it's at the root. There is an opportunity in a crisis. Taking stock of all of it is overwhelming. During the course of this reporting, I found myself overcome with anxiety. The racial fault lines of the coronavirus were so clear. The problem facing historical red line and disadvantaged communities so layered, I felt caught underneath the weight of processing it all. But what was most maddening was how invisible these most vulnerable for COVID are. 
Few media outlets have focused on communities of colors as a high-risk group for the coronavirus. And all the press briefings given by Trump and never spoke about black community. A word that came up with every health and public policy expert I spoke to was exposure. The coronavirus has exposed the failures of our societal safety net and healthcare system and has exposed our fragility and interdependence and exposed the worst, most foundations of a problem that we are set up to kill black people. So they're pushing all this. What do you think happened? Presley, Warren called for racial data and coronavirus testing. Warren and Presley are calling out apparent lack of racial data that they say is needed to monitor and address disparities in the national response to coronavirus outbreak. In a letter sent Friday to Health and Human Services, Azar, Warren and Presley said comprehensive demographic data on people who are text, tested or treated for the virus that caused COVID does not exist. Over the weekend, cities with large black and non-white Hispanic populations emerge as new hotspot. Any attempt to contain COVID in the United States will have to address its potential spread in low-income communities of color. First and foremost, to protect the lives of people in those communities, but also to slow the spread of this virus in the country as a whole. This lack of information will exasperate existing health disparities. The result is a loss of lives of vulnerable communities. The letter Warren, Senator Camelia Harris, California, Cora Booker of Jersey, and Robin Kelly of Illinois also signed the letter. It was shared exclusively to AP. They demanded stats. They furthered on decades of structural racism that prevented so many black and brown families from accessing quality health care, affordable housing, and financial security. And the coronavirus crisis is blowing these disparities wide open. This is Elizabeth Warren, the Cherokee. We need the government to step up in a big way to ensure the community of color have equal access to free testing and treatment. Congresswoman Presley and I aren't going to let it up until we see solid data and real progress. In a phone interview, Presley said it. The race and ethnic data are needed to directly influence how we marshal and target resources. I think we're flying blind because we're playing catch-up when it comes to educating the public about who is at risk. In all things, I strive to push for equality, and that is not going to change, certainly not in the midst of pandemic. According to CDC, the agency has run 4,760 COVID-19 tests, whilst U.S. public health data has run 128,684 tests as of Monday. This was last week. The CDC data doesn't include tests processed by private labs. Blah, blah, blah. They then... Well, let's let's hit that first. A woman who lied about her ethnicity is pushing an ethnicity letter, and it's okay in our media. That, that's the part that just still kills me. I mean, let's ignore she ran for president, and people actually thought she was serious... When if I ran as an American Indian as my big, fat, balding, white ass, I would get run out on a rail. But they really want to stick with that structural thing that there aren't poor white people dying of this, that there's not poor southerners and trailer parks getting a corona, and they don't have access to health care. Me and my wife would not have health care if I didn't serve 20 years in the Army. And that health care is useless right now. I can't go to a doctor. They're not treating anything. You can't go to that hospital. 
So by yesterday, again by the evening, black people are contracting and dying to coronas at a higher rate. One of the most insidious bits of information in the early days of pandemic was the idea that black people were somehow, as of by magic, immune from COVID. Not only was that a rumor grossly inaccurate, a new report reveals that black people are getting hit by the disease at alarming rate. ProPublica reports that early data show that black people are not only contracting, but disproportionately dying. Though data on race and ethnicity patients are limited, some localities have begun tracking it. As of Friday morning, African Americans made up almost half of Milwaukee's 945 cases and 81% of its 27 deaths. So they take a one-town, majority black, and they run with it. Um, the next little tidbit. In Michigan, where the state's population is 14% black, African Americans made up 35% of the cases and 40% of the deaths. Detroit, where majority of residents are black, has emerged as a hot spot with a high death toll. As has New Orleans, Louisiana has not published case breakdowns by race, but 40% of the state's deaths have happened in Orleans Parish, where the majority of residents are black. Illinois and North Carolina are two of the few areas published statistics on COVID-19 cases by race, and their donut data shows a disproportionate number of African Americans were affected and they list no data to f- say that. They just say it proves our point. Well, the majority of African Americans live inside the urban center, and urban centers are getting it. What the fuck, Chuck? But they have no data. They went off three cities, and they made it fact. And this ran out on ProPublica to get clickbait, and now everybody believes it. Everybody fucking believes it. But I say unto you, if that's the case, then why do I have this? Dems introduce measure to give coronavirus relief check to illegal aliens. That's the bill they're pushing. Democrats on Friday introduced measures to amend the $2 trillion CARE Act, extending the cash payment benefit to non-citizens. Three House Democrats, Lou Carora, Judy Chu, and Ruul, 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 whatever the fuck, it's got too many letters. Grijava of Arizona introduced no, the Leave No Taxpayer Behind Act, designated to amend the payments the CARE Act, the $2 trillion emergency payment, that none of us have seen. The Leave No Taxpayer Behind Act amends the CARE Act to ensure that all taxpayers are eligible for the $1,200 relief check. Every individual taxpayer, irrespective of citizen status, should receive government assistance. With more than 140,000 corona cases in the United States, it is imperative we come together. This pandemic has led to the closure of many small businesses. This act would amend it so they get it and they just got that... If if African Americans and gays are so important, why are we doing that? AOC, to clarify, $1,200 checks are only going to some with social security numbers, not immigrants with tax ideas. Thanks to GOP, these checks will be cut off the backs of tax-paying immigrants. Yeah, many work at Amazon that you didn't want in fucking New York, you fucking troll. 
What Trump and Senate GOP have done is hold hospitals, working people, and the vulnerable hostage so they can get in $500 billion in corporate welfare. Without the Wall Street giveaway, GOP refused to fund hospitals and unemployment. It's inhumane. And once again, she can do it. She can get away with this. It's okay. You can just get away with it. Use Amazon as an example, and you ran Amazon out of New York. Our last article, Seattle PD no longer has resources to respond to burglaries, burglaries and assaults. Also, Seattle Police Chief tells people to call 911 if called racist names during the pandemic. She's an African-American. Yeah, that's a, that's a fucking real deal. So we'll close on another soundbite from the root. It's usually really racist, and nobody seems to care at the National Broadcasting Center. We have this lock em up over the key mentality. You should not be hit with a double jeopardy. You should not be fined twice. You should be given the opportunity to have that be respected and therefore get all of the things that people would normally get in society as it relates to that population when there is an epidemic. My name is Dr. Yusuf Salam. I'm one of the exonerated five. Can you describe the traditional, I guess, how traditional prison conditions would look? One of the... uh, hardest things to get used to in prison is the smell of prison. Of course, you know, trauma happens there. We know that um, all kinds of atrocities happen there. But imagine if those things never get cleaned up. People who might have to vomit. You know, people who've gotten cut. People who've died. You know, people who've gotten physically assaulted. And I'll just let your imagination kind of understand what that may mean in an adult prison. If you want something that is going to help you smell better, you have to purchase the soap that would clean you in commissary. Now, they do have the prison brand, but how often can you get the prison brand? If they're telling us to act as if we all have the virus, don't go and, 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 and visit family and loved ones, shelter in place. If they're telling us this stuff, and they're telling us about the infirm, they're telling us about the elderly, they're telling us about how do we protect ourselves, we have to understand that in prison, You have that full spectrum. You have people that are young, bunking many times, or on housing units many times with people that are old and infirm. You know, if you move from one housing unit to another housing unit, from one cell to another cell, you don't always get the opportunity to clean that cell before you can lay your head down. And you have people in prisons who have to bunk with someone else. You have people in prisons who, if one person gets sick on the unit, that whole unit will get sick. That's how serious it is. Somebody sneezes, everybody, oh my goodness, we're talking about now you can put on face masks. I'm sure nobody's giving prisoners face masks. I'm sure nobody's giving prisoners um, hand sanitizer. These are the common necessities now. This is stuff that we need to survive. Whatever we are seeing in the world is going to be times 10. It's going to be magnified in the prison industrial complex. We are introducing New York State Clean Hand Sanitizer made conveniently by the state of New York. Governor Cuomo has announced that New York has begun producing its own line of hand sanitizer. 
but incarcerated people are being paid as little as 16 cents an hour to produce the hand sanitizer. So, you know, I, I would love to get uh, your thoughts and also what equity would look like there. When you think about the prison industrial complex, you're talking about a population of people that in a very real way have become the new Jim Crow, have become the new slave population, are the representation of the 13th Amendment in real life. To then use that population in a way that's meaningful, but to not grant them proper equity, not grant them proper financial value when it comes to them doing something that is necessary. This is a straight up bailout by the people who have been forgotten. There has to be a, a give because of the take. As a government, as a society, it would make great sense for them to say, you know what, let me reduce some of the time that you are to do because you're participating in this bailout. Do you think that inmates are fearful of COVID-19 and the impact it could have um, either in prison or in jail? I think inmates are very fearful of the impact of COVID-19 in the prison industrial complex because they know that they are part of the forgotten population. Their fear also has to be translated to the people who care for them. That they, not just the wardens, not just the officers, but the mayors and, and everybody, all of the people that are part of that society, part of that municipality, it has to be translated to them because what we have to understand is that in this crisis, how we treat the least of us reflects on how we treat the best of us. You're the next contestant on Liberal Shit. Dad! Please, what are you talking to? Sorry, don't listen to me. Be quiet, please. last few weeks I um I really felt a shift in our relationship but it's time it's time now to, to let you go I'm bored hey, that's enough oh first wait wait I'm fine sorry 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 get out of you shut the fuck up Ava shut up Pregnancy is not over. I'll feel it when I'm free. 
Oh, no. Uh, it's shallow. Damn it, Isabel, this is not a good time to be alone. You know, the irony is, I'm not alone. For the first time, I am just like all the other girls. Did you know that our city council just passed a resolution banning clinics? They call Roswell the last sanctuary city for the unborn. Just the unborn. We don't have a women's shelter. You know, parents have picked a fine place to crash a flying saucer. Just to reiterate, women in New York opted to go to Indiana to have more choice about their pregnancy. That's how f***ed up things are. Which brings me to this. Some states are now using COVID-19 as an excuse to restrict access to abortion because, of course, they are. Well, Texas tonight moving to ban most abortions due to the coronavirus pandemic. Tonight we have learned that Tennessee and Mississippi are among the states that will consider abortions non-essential. The Ohio Attorney General is ordering a Cleveland women's clinic to stop performing elective surgical abortions. Planned Parenthood and the ACLU are suing Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt says this executive order includes any type of abortion service that's not an emergency. Alabama's attorney general says abortion clinics are not exempt from the new state health order and are required to shut down. Some of these restrictions are being challenged, but that can't happen quickly enough. Before a judge blocked its ban, Texas abruptly canceled around 150 abortions, with some women traveling hundreds of miles to clinics only to be turned away. Now, if you're, say, a dude and you can't quite empathize, let me put this in terms you might understand. Um, imagine driving hours to see your favorite band, which, if you're a middle-aged white guy, I assume is Pearl Jam. It's the only chance you'll ever have to see Pearl Jam play live. And if you don't get to see Pearl Jam play live now, your life will never be the same. But then when you finally get to the concert, Pearl Jam refuses to go on. You're devastated. And then Eddie Vedder forces you to have a f***ing baby. You'd be like, not cool, Eddie Vedder. The idea that any abortion isn't essential is medically irresponsible. Not having access to... Abortion is really huge on the left right now because they're not being able to kill all their babies. So much that as we're doing this in the theater, straight home, pay $20 to see a movie, today, of course, is releases for most of this shit. So I go in the first thing this morning, uh, we woke up at 6.30, I push on demand to see what came out, rented a scary movie for the wife that is direct to home so i don't know if it's gonna be very good but we had a free certificate so i used it and this was the movie it's an abortion movie about a girl who leaves pennsylvania goes to new york to get her abortion it is everything you would think about one of these movies men are terrible them getting accosted by men it's called never rarely sometimes always supposedly part of a questionnaire to get an abortion. I didn't see you at school today. I went to the doctor. What's wrong? Girl problems. Don't you ever just wish you were a dude? All the time. This is the most magical sound you will ever hear. She's not ready to be a mom. Where else could you go? Nowhere in Pennsylvania. I think you should try another place. 
going to New York? What are you doing there? Seeing family and stuff. Used to be on Who came with you today? My cousin. Do you have a place to stay tonight? I know you came from far away. I'll figure it out. This area is closed. Can I sleep here? Where's the rest of the money? La, 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 la. I want to make sure that you're safe. La, 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 la. I know this is hard. Ask you some questions. They can be really personal. Just answer either never, rarely, sometimes, or always. You can just tell they're just butt hurt. Uh, shot my abortion weapon of choice. A decade ago, while living in Houston, Texas, I volunteered as a patient escort at a Planned Parenthood downtown office. Then located on a busy street, the Reproductive Care Clinic public location attracted a diverse cross-section of anti-choice. The scene inside, outside the office ranged from bizarre to the ghoulish. In a modern interpretation of the Battle of Jericho, one man circled the building seven times every afternoon and blew on a shofar and hoped that the clinic would crumble to the ground. Busloads of students from religious high schools in Houston conservative suburbs were filed out in front of PPFA with red tape across their lips, symbolizing the silence of the unborn fetus. Wow, you said fetus. Other protesters adopted a twisted logic where anti-choice politics meant anti-racist lip service. A white woman would approach African-American clients with a pamphlet about the connection between birth control and eugenics. Did you know the most dangerous place for a black child is in the womb? She'd yell. Yeah, I'm sure that's what you said. Or yelled. <clears throat> At the time, PPFA Houston was in the midst of constructing a new clinic, double size of downtown location to better serve the city's population of 2 million. In January 2010, thousands of anti-choicers organized a protest at the new clinic site, pejoratively dubbed by the movement as Abortion Supercenter. Police corralled counter-protesters, myself and a few dozen others, in tighter and tighter quarters on the sidewalk across the street. Though the new clinic opening was assured, it would not help feeling outnumbered. As we drove away that afternoon, I spotted a stone-faced man perched on the side of an I-45 in a lawn chair, holding a pitchfork with a baby doll part stuck through each of its spikes. I've even never forgotten the vehement imagery of these protesters. By contrast, contemporary art has been reluctant to address the subject of abortion in some direct terms until recently. In 2015, journalists and bloggers launched the online campaign, Shout Your Abortion, which encourages social media users and artists like to share their experience with reproductive choice. In 2018, artist Barbara Zucker created the Open Call exhibit, Currents Abortion, AIR, the Cooperative Feminist Gallery in Brooklyn. Her press release articulated the connection between reproductive choice and human rights. Abortion remains a signifier of women's ownership over their bodies, being an urgent subject as any of the issues that now consume us. In the opening months of 2020, three exhibits have framed abortion in no uncertain terms as political, intersectional, and conceptual issues. So she started a art project. Art. Killing babies is art. Okay. But to a point, it seems there still is, because on that site, 
My Parallel Life, March 17th. I was 22 in an abusive relationship, not all the kind of person I knew I could become to be the kind of mother I wanted to be. Having an abortion was the best for me, but I don't think about it often. There are small amounts every so often where I am reminded that I have a parallel life out there, a life where my baby would be turning two this year. When I see a young mother when my sister hit milestones of the current pregnancy, when I got to plan fun trips with my friends, or when I made decisions about my future that I know would be so much more difficult if I had a baby to think about too. And so even when I feel sadness creep in, I feel strength that I killed a baby. And there was about 10 of them. So clearly abortions are happening. The New York Times, it's hardly new for anti-abortion politicians to seize on any excuse to try to restrict women's body autonomy, but in a new low to exploit a pandemic that's already cost hundreds of Americans' lives. Liz Wiegler, the New York Times editorial board, is disgusting. In the midst of a nationwide effort to save lives, they're advocating to kill lives. But they don't see that logic. Higher death count, please. New York Times editor demand more abortions. Yeah. Another article. In recent days, leaders in several states, including Texas, Ohio, and Louisiana, have pushed to close abortion clinics as non-essential. The editorial board wrote, um, of course, that's ignorant, the piece asserts, writing that since the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists says so, the group of pro-abortion physicians composed a joint statement. Abortion is a central component of comprehensive health care. It's also time-sensitive service. The consequences of being unable to obtain an abortion profoundly impact a person's life. Oh, yeah. Maybe the babies? Ah, yes. Killing kids is essential as an ER doctor saving lives. It's just dark Orwellian leftist game. The notion that someone wanting an abortion, a choice, is an equal emergency to somebody having a heart attack is not convincing. The op-ed revealed the real fear, which is that once abortion clinics are temporarily shut, they tend not to open back up. These state leaders know that once an abortion clinic closes for a significant period, it becomes difficult to reopen. They cited the example of a 2013 Texas law that closed down several clinics. Even though the Supreme Court struck down the law years later, those closed clinics couldn't find the resources to become operational again. Yeah, that's what's about. Yes, we hear in time and time again, abstinence is never realistic, and even abortion mills were deemed non-essential in this pandemic. People wouldn't be smart enough about it, huh? No, they'd say conservatives forced them into a dangerous self-abortion. The rest of the piece was appealed to allow pill-induced abortions by mail or telemedicine in the event that people can't access birth control. So, while this is going on, PPFA sues Texas after governor declares abortion non-essential. Planned Parenthood and the Center for Reproductive Rights have partnered with abortion right law firm to sue the Texas and Governor Abbott for making it non-essential. Abbott issued the ban, Fox News reports, to protect the state's supply of emergency medical equipment and personal protective gear. Makes total sense. The governor implored health care providers like Planned Parenthood to postpone any procedures that are not medically necessary. Governor Abbott, an anti-abortion activist nationwide, are forcing a legal and political fight in the middle of a health crisis. No, they're not. There's all sorts of clinics shut down, just not abortion clinics. Elected leaders are expanding valuable time and resources, exploiting a global pandemic, and score political points instead of rallying to respond to the crisis. 
Abortion care is time-sensitive and essential health care that has a profound impact on a person's life. Jesus Christ, we just read that in the article. The New York Times wrote it. Do you see how they feed talking points? And the New York Times just willingly takes it out. The suit demands a restraining order to put, be put in place against the directive and argues that Planned Parenthood use only minimal personal protective gear. The group claims that Abbott is singling abortion providers or providers and their patients out for differential treatments for providers, other medical service, and their patients. Here is the reality. There are people not getting colonoscopies. There's people not getting hip replacement, knee surgeries, back surgeries. Their lives are in total pain every day. Those aren't going on. I was scheduled to get an allergy test to start actually getting allergy shots. Nope. Not happening. But the left lives in their own universe where only their causes are important. Everything else doesn't matter. Here's the good fight. There's season premiere coming up, I guess. And in their other reality, Hillary Clinton is president. So, what do you want to do now, Diane? Get back to work. What work? Something's going on. I've had cases disappear when the judge was given Memo 618. Memo 618. It seems to allow rich and powerful people to not comply with judicial rulings. Sir, do you want me to talk? Yes. I was asserting privilege. What privilege? I can't say. It's privileged. There was a young man who begged a Zen master to teach him. So the master stuck his head underwater and proclaimed, Come back when you want truth as much as air. <laughs> you want us to want truth? Oh, good. The angry black woman has made an appearance. Who would say that was an uncomfortable situation? Who would say that was unacceptable? I didn't know there was worse than uncomfortable. Can I change my vote? The rich are not like us. We all should be subject to the same justice. If it doesn't work that way, then it's over. We're done. Your Honor, I just wanted to explain these movements that you see. <laughs> My goodness. Hate comes in many forms. I never used to swear. So when I do that, it has added meaning. And this is mother nuts. Do you know what Memo 618 is? No, I didn't think you did. It's like a parallel universe, man. They're just in a second wave length. CNN used guests 44 times for 150 minutes, but 10 seconds citing Planned Parenthood past. Yeah, the one that was shit-canned. Throughout the pandemic, CNN has shown perhaps the strongest inability to shy away from framing the pandemic through the lens of attacking Trump. I watched the other day for an hour. Literally every guest that was brought on was asked shit to dog Trump. Every fucking guest. Non-stop. Is it Trump's fault? Is he killing people? Is it Trump's fault? Is Trump lying? Another tick has been their continued refusal to be honest with viewers about the frequent guest Dr. Lena Wen was a former president of PPFA who got shit canned because she wouldn't use proper pronouns. 
On March 16th, the Media Research Center kept tabs on Wynn's appearances and calculated her total airtime. And it was total airtime, 150 minutes. Noted she was 10 seconds. One person did it. Yeah. Chirons include those in addition to listing her as a visiting professor at George Washington University and John Hopkins School of Public Health. Though she doesn't have that listed on her LinkedIn profile, GW page, or Twitter bio. As with the case, the first study wins longtime appearance in this batch came during a CNN Global Town Hall, Coronavirus Facts and Fears. A day after the previous study publication, when media tour continued on the following date, spread across nine shows, March 17th, 18th, 20th, 21st, 22nd, 23rd, and 25th, 26th, 27th, 28th, 29th, 30th, 31st, March 1st, and 2nd. In the span, 11 CNNers who interviewed when John Berman, Victor Backwell, Will Blitzer, Alyssa Camarado, Anderson Cooper, S.E. Cup, Sanjay Gupta, Brian Keller, Brianna Keller, John King, Christian Paul, and Frederica Whitfield. When appeared eight times on a, as a soundbite and a tape reports, and increased from only one soundbite hit from March 2 to the 16th. Leaving aside the rapid partisanship elsewhere, CNN has decided that in this case, embodying their motto, facts first, doesn't apply. Think that's it? Nope! American Hispanic super brand, despite coronavirus, abortions remain essential. As the coronavirus pandemic further strains the national media capability, Univision continues to carry Planned Parenthood water. Watch a full report below in which anchor Sache Preto unblinkingly repeats the abortion industry's complex grievance against Governor Abbott. Univision continues to do it. So, to non-abortion. This top movie producer declares Hollywood's out of touch. This is producer Jason Blum. He did the hunt, which makes this article kind of suspect. But Ben Shapiro had him on. He's as left to center in Hollywood peers. Witnesses previous comments about President Donald Trump. Bloom's films reflect that progressive spirit. Think Get Out Purge. We're just learning a third tourism about the famed producer, something more important to give the tenor of our times. He's not a fan of the woke mob, or nor does he want to silence his ideological foes. He's ready to talk to conservatives and listen. Think that's opposed to promote his newest film, The Hunt, which mocks our cultural divide? Perhaps Blum took one specific action that suggests he's telling the truth. He sat down with Ben Shapiro. Yeah, so he literally said that America... Hollywood's nothing to do with it's just not. He talked about the bubble on systemic bias against conservatives. If you said that about any other group of people, you'd be arrested. I think that's very sad. Blum on Hollywood's addiction to gargantuan budgets. Blum on so-called Hollywood bubble. One of the things I agree with right about is that I think a lot of Hollywood, including myself, I would say, is out of touch with America, with the taste America, and that bothers him. On Ben Shapiro, I did a lot of research on you before I came in here, and I looked at what you've said and done, and all you expressed is a conservative point of view. The idea we talk, we can't talk to each other, or that I can't go on your show makes me furious. But he got trashed for it. Trashed. Rapper MIA, I don't believe in vaccination for kids. Just going to leave it there. Twitter influencers blast out of New York. 
Taylor Lorenza, a well-known mom, blogger, mom influencer, has sparked backlash after posting that about leaving New York City and heading west in an RV with her kids to get more space during the pandemic. It's absolutely not actually fine. It's against that all public health officials are urging. Normalizing the type of behavior of potential millions is also wildly irresponsible. Please listen to medical experts. Stephen M. C. Neal quotes several... Several, another influencer responsibly posts about fleeing New York metro area and driving down to Florida with the whole family. Yeah. The whole family. Well, you know what? I'd do the same thing. I wouldn't stay there. Soros-funded progressive outlet claimed virus is time to abolish the family. This is like a new theme on the left. Lefties on George Soros' payroll know how that no good crisis should go to waste or using the coronavirus pandemic as an excuse to peddle their communist garbage, like the idea that this crisis should remind society of its imperative to abolish the family and the private household. Wow. Open-funded, open democracy funded in part by George Soros and chaired nonprofit group Open Society muses social distancing and quarantine during the Chinese virus pandemic may have revealed the limitations of the private single-family household. Perhaps now there's a chance we can do away with this scourge. Other Soros-funded groups have taken political advantage of the pandemic, like Priorities USA Action, which just recently aired, adds hammering Trump. According to MRC business analyst Joseph Vasquez, Soros Democracy Pack and liberal billionaire Donald Sussman have bankrolled the group with $13 million combined so far this cycle. The Open Democracy Post pointed out several problems with the modern society idea of going home to be safe with the family, namely the mystification of the couple form, the romanticization of kinship, and the sanitization of fundamentally unsafe space that is private property. No, I'm not going to read any more of this. They even go on to the, it isn't safe, domestic violence. Holy fucking shit, you fucking people are garbage. Two are lighter fare. Okay, been collecting a lot of lighter fare during this, so we're going to start with Ranger Up as a health care worker, which is pretty funny. And let me see, uh, let's see, New York Fashion Barista, Spotlight, Wrap-Up, Vet TV. All right, uh, Vet TV Spotlight for Heather Lynn. So we'll do two military, and then I have a Tom Cruise one. Obviously, we're taking the coronavirus very seriously. But do you think maybe that people are getting a little bit too crazy out there? I mean, I don't want to throw stones, but I'm a little bit worried that last year's as a veteran is going to turn into this year's as a healthcare worker. I was talking to Doc Simpson the other day, and he said that one of his fellow doctors said that going to work in the ER every day was like D-Day. D-Day. accurate. Couldn't disagree. Nobody speaks. Nobody can No, 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 you don't. I just want to play. You are not touching him. He is young. He is supple. He is sweet. I he is just pink. just 
Wanna waterboard him with my pussy and make him my Guantanamo fucking bitch. Alright, what's going on guys? I'm Deputy Bookham. So I played a sovereign citizen today as well with my partner Deputy uh, Hookham. Uh, which is so far from the truth because I'm a cop in real life and I play a cop on the internet. So uh, it was a little bit different different to play that kind of role, but I'm used to it. We get to a lot at work. So having those kind of people interact with us at work, it's nice to change the role and play it here for TV. I don't recognize that government, sir. Holy shit, you don't recognize me? You heard me. He's got his camera out. I thought I was famous. He's being filmed. Don't worry. It's okay. But it was a great time. It was good, you know, having uh, having Rich in there and in our face and yelling and... So I'm going to break it down nice and Barney-style for you. So I'm Heather Lynn. I play the Sergeant Major's daughter on Checkpoint Charlie this season. Um, it was interesting filming with all the people from Vet TV, just trying to make some magic happen. Uh, I had to channel my inner succubus, which was interesting to say the least. No, 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 you don't. I just want to play. You are not touching him. He is young. He is supple. He is sweet. I he is pink. I just want to waterboard him with my pussy and make him my Guantanamo fucking bitch. In my scene, I am very sexually forward with several of the other characters, um, trying to trap them in my little sex web. So I've worked with Vet TV over the past year, and it's interesting just to watch this this thing evolve from what it was when I initially came on. We just even this time around, bringing new people in and new characters, and just kind of meeting all of my favorite internet personalities in real life has been really cool. My name is Logan Stark. I played a white terrorist, a white jihadi terrorist. Uh, for the series Checkpoint Charlie on Vet TV. Pretty short roll. I got stuffed in a trunk. You know, so it's similar to the rest of my life, enclosed and in a dark place. Uh, but I had a chance to work with these guys, mostly spitballing a bunch of stuff. Hi. <laughs> um, but it was, uh, it was really fun. You know, Black Rifle, we do a lot of most of the things that we do now are scripted and in the auto, so uh, the opportunity to kind of just do some stuff off the cuff was really fun, and uh, it was a great time. Can I do that? Yeah, I get yeah. I get so much pussy. Do you? Do you, Lawrence? Do you get a lot of pussy? Hey, Lawrence, what's your pussy situation like? Can we kill Bacar? Because oh, fuck that guy. If you join the army, you can kill all the Bacar you want. Fuck yeah, I'm in. We started watching Mission Impossible, and we watched the last one, and for some reason I was Google searching, and this is pretty interesting. I knew he did his own stunts, but Tom Cruise, which, by the way, Mavericks postponed to December, which just crushes my soul, um, he does his own stunts to the 10th. We're talking, he learned to fly a helicopter. Not only learned to fly it, to stunt fly it. This is a corkscrew dive. It's one of the most difficult maneuvers you can pull off in a helicopter and one that Tom Cruise learned to fly himself. It was his own real-life impossible mission because Ethan Hunt and his team are back. It's another race against time after an operation gone wrong. What the hell is he doing? I find it best not to look. 
Cruz put in about three months of solid days in the classroom and in the air to gain the skills that he needed. He came to helicopter school at Airbus in Texas, so we did too, to find out what's involved. By taking some classes and taking the controls. Cruz has made a name for himself as a Hollywood daredevil, doing many of his own extremely risky scenes, back since the Mission Impossible franchise started in 1996. But this is extreme, even for him. This is the H-125, a lighter class of helicopter. I mean, this isn't just any old H-125, this is the one that was actually used this in the, the movie, right? This is the one that was used in the movie, you're absolutely correct. Matt Evans, my instructor, a super experienced pilot himself, breaks down how he'd approach a corkscrew dive. A maneuver like that would have to be very carefully planned out. Initially, you'd start with nosing the nose over. That would initiate the descent. Roll gently into a turn. Hold the turn as you come down, watching the... Uh, Rotor RPM, because as the G-forces increase, that's going to want to spin the rotor RPM very, very fast. That can in itself cause a lot of trouble for both the pilot and the, and the aircraft itself. So you'd have to limit that by constantly keeping your hands on the controls, watching what's going on both inside and out simultaneously. Got that? Not sure I have, but training starts in the classroom. Much of becoming a pilot is theory. It's book learning and exams. It can take a week of eight-hour days just to get the basics, and then there are tests. <laughs> the next step is a state-of-the-art simulator, a place that you can make mistakes without dying. It's surprisingly realistic, though. It replicates the feel of flying faithfully with legs that jog it up and down and wrap around screens inside. Hold on back there. Ready? Hold on. Matt's making it look easy. This maneuver is pretty close to the corkscrew dive. Helicopters are particularly challenging to fly because as a pilot you have to be constantly engaged with the controls. Right hand on the cyclic, left hand on the collective, feet on the pedals. Move one and you have to adjust all the others too. As a novice I grip the controls too hard and my adjustments just aren't subtle enough. Even when I try to fly straight and level, we drift. It's gusty, is that possible? Are we in, like, weight uh, or is that just me not being able to fly? That's actually just you learning. Oh, okay. What is going on? It's a lot harder than it looks. At the end of that flight, I'm ready for a break. But next, things are getting real. It's time to take to the air and see how much I've remembered. I'm in the pilot seat, front right, but Matt is alongside with dual controls. And to be clear, he's the one flying here. This is when a helicopter feels incredible when you're this close to the ground. Floating on a cushion of air. You ready to take the controls for a minute? No. <laughs> I went right here with you, okay? We'll cut it down. In three, two, one, you have the flight controls. I know it doesn't look dramatic, but trust me, this is stressful. I thought I'd be tempted to just try out some manoeuvres, but focusing on level flight is enough to make me sweat. A little bit of pressure. I feel like you can spend time in the simulator and in the classroom, and those things are obviously important, but there's nothing like being out here and seeing real life going on below us. And my hands are actually a little bit tense and tight just from holding these controls, and I wasn't even doing anything. I'm definitely not trying a corkscrew dive, and neither is Matt. It's not only taxing on the pilot, but also the aircraft. So it's not something you do on a routine training flight. But we can get pretty close. 
Here, Matt is pointing us straight down with a lurch that feels like a roller coaster. The terrain, terrain warning means please don't crash into the rapidly approaching ground. I feel like I understand why Cruz wanted to fly his own stunts. It's the only way to make this look fully real. Whoa, that's what I want. How was that, McHugh? Uh, very upsetting here. Well, I guess that's a print. Absolutely. The next challenge for the Mission Impossible crew was how to show the audience that Cruz really is the pilot. While most aerial chases you'll see from a helicopter, we don't usually turn the cameras in. So we've developed these rigs over the last couple of months where we can basically hard mount cameras to show that Ethan Hunt is flying the helicopter without anybody else. Every camera position has been designed so that you can see that Tom is doing everything himself. All that rigging's already been removed from the helicopter. Eventually, this one will be sold to the next customer, who'll be getting a bit of Hollywood history, but one that's been fully serviced and restored after that demanding flying. But the real movie magic came through dedication and focus. Tom Cruise developed the skills of a pilot who's flown thousands of hours in a very short amount of time. It's a reminder of just how much further I'd have to go to qualify as opposed to just ride along. So someone who doesn't have any sort of flight training previously, it would probably take them for a very, very talented, coordinated individual two to three months. And that's at six to eight hours of theory per day and a hardcore three hours of flying. Up to 1,500 pilots and trainees come through this facility every year, honing their skills for the police, fire and medical services or for military work. Tom Cruise just happens to be the most famous amongst them, and the one whose impossible mission will be watched by millions. And then right now as I was recording, Matt in Oregon sent me a funny thing that Joe Biden has a kid. Listen to this and tell me, I think this kid's a better orator than Biden. Have you ever had a dream that... That you um you had you 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 could you do you you want you you could do so you you do you could you you want you want him to do you so much you could do anything. Funny shit. Thanks, Matt. So that wraps up another episode of Flyover Politics Podcast. Please feel free to share with your family and friends. Send comments to foppodcast at gmail.com, foppodcast gmail.com. Get the show on SoundCloud, Podcast Eddie, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, and PocketCast. Remember, check out the Facebook at Fop Podcast and Twitter page at Fop Tony Reed. Our next show will be for, or let me do it the way I always do it, the 12th of April, year of our Lord, 2020. That's this coming Sunday. Until then, stay safe out there. Make sure you enjoy this time with your family. Disconnect from all your devices. Don't give the yeah yeahs. Tune back in Sunday for another show that I promise will not be four hours long. As always, thanks for listening and take care. Quarantine, quarantine, drinking
some fresh deer meat. But I hope your family's well. Hope them hands are clean. Any chance that you might have an extra AR-15. Quarantine, quarantine, drinking whiskey like vaccine. Waving at the neighbors, social distancing. I meant that in like a metaphorical sense, not a literal sense, because if it came together, that would be the antithesis of what quarantine means. But good thing we have FaceTime because we can hang out and make dumb songs like this. And shout out to all the healthcare workers out there. And, and Tim, I really like that chorus. Let's hit that one more time. Quarantine, quarantine, drinking whiskey like vaccine, waving at the neighbors, social distancing, quarantine. 